You're listening to Frame 25, a monthly micro edition of the Brightwall Darkroom podcast in conversation with and sponsored by our friends at Gallery. Every month we pick a title from Gallery's curated library and zoom in on a moment to better see the whole. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Hey, Chad. How's it going? Going good. How are you? Good, good. (laughs) So today we have your pick. We're taking a bite out of James Gray's 2008 film, Two Lovers. Yes, we are. What made you pick this film? Well, first, we should just say that James Gray is the curator du jour this month at a gallery, which I was really excited about. I'm a big James Gray fan and actually realized that I have seen every movie of his, which I usually always have missing spots and stuff. Everyone except for the first one, Little Odessa, I never saw, but mm-hmm. seen everything since. And I'm fascinated by the evolution of his career and I'm fascinated by lots mm-hmm. of different stuff. But I thought for what he was doing in what I consider the first half of his career, Two Lovers for me was kind of the apex of it. I just really enjoyed it a lot. Mm-hmm. I was hoping that would still be the case, you know, what, 12, 13, 14 years later, and was happy to report, as it sounds like maybe you were too. It's, it was a great film. It was better than I remembered it. Not just as good. It was. Me too. I was like, this is amazing. I really like this. And I don't know if that's about what movies are like now versus <laughs> what they were like then, or if it's just like, no, this is, I'm older and it hits differently and then, you know, maybe learned some things about the world. But I just thought it was so rich and complex and ambiguous in the kind of ways I love, even all the way up to the final ending, intentionally so, I think. And yeah, just I just really, really enjoyed it. And I really miss that version of Joaquin Phoenix as well. Mm-hmm. For those who haven't seen the movie or could just use a little reminder about it, um, Two Lovers stars Joaquin Phoenix as Leonard, a would-be photographer who lives out in Brighton Beach, New York, with his parents, works for their dry cleaning business, and gets himself kind of torn between two women, kind of like an inside candidate and an outside candidate. We have (laughs) Sandra Cohen, played by Vanessa Shaw, who I just recently rewatched in The Amazing Eyes Wide Shut, and Neighbor Michelle, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. This is our second Shaw film since we talked about Eyes Wide Shut a while ago. I know. But somehow only our first Joaquin, unless I'm missing something in there. I think you're actually right. Yeah. Yeah. Surprising. (laughs) We're Vanessa Shaw completists on the Frame 25 podcast. I was also wondering, I know it's not the point, but uh, where did she go? She was so good in both of, I mean, 1999, 2008, and then, yeah. I actually don't know. Also, the other thing I do think, and you might have even said this a while, and I'm just repeating you back to yourself, but I do think this was like the last great kind of Gwyneth Paltrow role. Mm. I know she's been in some Marvel movies and doing whatever Goop is, but... I just think a lot of people at this point were like younger people like my children. I don't think that they think of her as like, well, she was a really amazing actress. Mm. And I think roles like this really kind of allowed her. But I think this is the first time we've had a chance to actually talk about her, talk about her. So I was thinking about how it's really when she started having kids that she stepped back from acting in such a sort of like ongoing way, yeah. you know, and she had already won her Oscar by then. Oh, like a de- yeah, almost 10 years before. Yeah, with Shakespeare in Love. So she's already good to go. But I mean, not that you'd like stop (laughs) at that point. But, you know, like you just you never know what's pressing on people from the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were talking before we got on mic about the fact that I did a double feature this morning of Two Lovers and Great Expectations, which is a good 10 years earlier in 1998. Mm -hmm. I was trying to explain to my boyfriend just the pull that Gwyneth Paltrow had as like a total movie star in the 1990s and 2000s, earlier 2000s, and how 
dated her styling and her kind of it is her kind of beauty her kind of presences now but it's so evocative to watch those movies back to back yeah i've really haven't seen that one in probably 20 years for great expectations it's great it was like 98 99 i'm like it's 98 okay. yeah alfonso cora in 1998 you know yeah. i think it doesn't hold up quite as well door to door as two lovers does mm. which i have not seen again until this morning since the first time that I saw it. But I totally share your impression that if anything, it's really grown in my estimation as complex. Yeah, that's great. But also really intimate, really intimate. Really intimate, yeah. Really specific about the kind of community that he's interested in depicting, which I gather is a continuation of what he was doing with Little Odessa in terms of focusing on mm -hmm. this really like southernmost part of Brooklyn, basically like Coney Island adjacent, yeah. where you're really far out there and it's an immigrant community community largely the way that that pressurizes the environment yeah. and the class aspirations is really interesting. And it really captures the pressurizing really well, too. Like, you can feel what it would be like to be him in that house with those parents. And, yeah. You know, I mean, it helps if Isabella Rossellini is your mom, but I could feel what it was like to be him the entire way through. And I think that I don't know if I fully processed it. I, I might have some better thoughts a week from now, but today's the recording day. So here we are. I know. Here we are. So I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it, too, though. And I do think the one other thought, and I always say this probably enough that it's a joke. There were so many different moments to pick that it was really hard to pick a moment. Mm -hmm. And had completely memory hold, but of course it's on theme. Like clockwork, there's opera in this movie. Mm -hmm. How do we keep doing this? Everything mm -hmm. in, we always end up picking movies with operas in them. So I thought it was wonderful. And I kept having to be like, was this set in 2008? I know it was made in 2000. And finally, when he uses the internet at one point, I'm like, okay, it's modern. Yeah. Because it feels like a 70s movie to me every time. Oh, really? Like I just kept thinking like, this just feels like, well, it just it didn't feel polished in that the, the way Hollywood movies often do. There was a, mm -hmm. but it was still beautiful. The narrative choices were so hard to predict, even though I'd seen it, I'd forgotten enough of the plot. I didn't remember how most of it played out. I remembered like some scenes, but I just thought so many interesting decisions from the craft of it to the actual mm. just script of it. I don't know. I was really taken by it. I'm happy. I think that kind of timelessness or old timiness that you're thinking about is such a reflection of the films lensing through the eyes of the immigrant parents oh, and yeah. how like Definitely. old fashioned or anachronistic the world of the apartment is, it is compared to the world outside. I mean, when we occasionally get out and see Leonard making his way into Manhattan mm -hmm. and like the musical cues change and we see the soft focus glisten of yellow cabs outside Lincoln Center and it just feels very romantic. Yeah. You know, like like <laughs> amazing to think that that represents kind of, quote unquote, getting out. It's yeah, just <laughs> like crossing the bridge and getting into Midtown. That romantic kind of strings on the soundtrack, the musical, the swelling of those, it was very, very evocative of that. So, I mean, yeah, I really liked the feelings it gave me in those scenes, too. <laughs> And the music, the music works really well. I mean, it's almost, yeah. it wouldn't have been out of place in like a 50s melodrama, some of that music. I, it really just kind of swoops and, sure. and swells in those ways that it just hit my brain really nicely. So Yeah, we also know that it's post 9-11 because at one point he makes a reference to a terrorist alert in the subway. That's so true. So I think that that's one of the most like dating moments of the yeah. film, even though the technology, which we usually rely on for that orientation in time, is mm -hmm. a little more varied in the film. Yeah, I mean, it, you could definitely pin it down to the internet's been invented. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also before the time. It, like, I don't know anyone who says, let me go look up something on the internet right now. And they go to their computer. Like everyone just pulls everyone. So that was the thing when oh, he's like on the. Oh, that's still me. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Open a new tab. 
<laughs> but also when he's talking on the phone, I was like, oh, yeah, this would be a text now. So thank God it's not. There was that era back when he had to, I don't know what the kind of text it was called, but you had to hit like the key three times to get it to do whatever. Like, no nope. T9 texting. There yeah. you go. So he wasn't going to waste his screen time T9 texting. You know? No. So they were they were still talking on the phone. So good. So out of all those possible moments, what's the moment that you want to bring our attention to? The moment that I picked was pretty unlike the entire rest of the movie, but it was a big moment. And then I'll get into the smaller moment is just the club scene, basically, for lack of a better word. They're going to a, I don't even know if you call them dance clubs. I'm pretty old. They went to a nightclub, maybe? I don't know what it is. What would you call where they were? Yeah, a nightclub. A nightclub, club. okay. Yeah. Club is fine. And yeah. it starts off with this breakdancing, which is kind of out of nowhere. But the part that I really love is, and I, either I miss something or I'm just con- easily confused. I couldn't figure out, like, the way he walks onto the thing and does this, like, weird little, I, I know you can't see me, rest of the listeners, but uh, the little robot kind of walk onto the dance floor mm-hmm. and then just busts out this amazing dance move that I watched like five times to figure out. I still don't know. Is that him or did they get a professional dancer and not show his face? It looks like it might have been him. It just kind of busted open all this Joaquin Phoenix stuff for me that I was really excited about. In terms of thematically, that was kind of an indication to me of like one of his... Awkwardness isn't quite the right word, but he he feels so awkward so often. Mm -hmm. And even in that walk, I was like, oh, God, he's going to embarrass himself. And then he busts out this dance. So it was surprising. Mm. And then the pulsating of the music and how you kind of get swept up in that part. And then, of course, it ends with him and and Gwyneth Paltrow dancing together. And there's a lot of strobe light. I randomly flashed onto After Sun for a second Mm -hmm. when that was the strobe light dancing moment. Mm -hmm. So I really just liked every single thing about that moment. And probably a few years from now, when I forget the plot again, that will be a scene that I will not forget. So that's great. It is interesting that like there's Sandra Cohen, this like the daughter of some friends of his family that are in the process of doing a kind of small business merger. Yes. And she's very beautiful, very sweet and very interested in Leonard. And then there's Mm -hmm. Michelle, his kind of like chaotic, possible drug addict neighbor who is in a relationship with a married man played by (laughs) Elias Codius from Crash, which is amazing. And Exotica. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Perfect casting. What I was really thinking about in relation to what you're saying about how he's so awkward for much of the movie as Joaquin Phoenix is in a lot of his performances, right? Mm -hmm. But then also good at sort of turning that off or giving us like an interesting kind of captivating break from that. Yeah, There's this really depressing way that this movie is dramatizing how, I'll I'll say people in general, but maybe men specifically, (laughs) form relationships with women based on like who they feel they have power over Mm. and who has power over them the way he switches registers in terms of like being very suave actually with sandra who he has power over yes and then being totally submissive to like to the point of delusion with michelle painful yeah right i mean that's ultimately one of the kind of like formative sadnesses of the movie is his inability to sort of navigate this in a smart or considered way and obviously builds a lot of like compassion for Sandra who more or less has no idea what part she's really playing in this triangle doesn't even ask him who his friend on the phone is when he keeps getting texts and calls like while they're in the midst of a date but it's great that Joaquin Phoenix can do both yeah right he can sort of give us that smooth operator and also be like the bumbling idiot and and equally convincing, I think, is what you're yeah. saying, too. I mean, like, it, it's not like, oh, here's his strong, oh, look, he's playing a bumbling guy. It's like, no, he does that really, really well, too. But that was the end of that era for Joaquin Phoenix. Like, he, mm-hmm. he wasn't in movies again until how long did that performance art thing go on? Like, a couple of years, I think. Mm-hmm. And then he's come back and he's just, again, one of the most amazing actors in the world. 
my hot take is this is the Joaquin Phoenix dance that we should be posting on the internet all the time, not this Joker coming down the stairs thing that I never want to see again in my life. Oh, fair, fair. If that was really him. The fact that he could dance is amazing. I've been impressed with him since he was in Parenthood, you know, as a, as a little kid. I just think he's an amazing actor in terms of anything. If I was making a movie, I would want him in it. How about that? I want to share with you an image that really struck me. Please do. My rewatch of the film this morning. Yeah, yeah. Because this is a movie that I, you know, the writing I think is great. The performances are so great. But in my memory, the images of Leonard and Michelle talking on the roof of their apartment building, that's what I sort of associated with the more stylistic voice of the film. But this rewatch, this other shot really stood out to me to the point where I had to like pause and really like think about what was going on in it. And it's um, when Leonard goes to dinner with Michelle and her boyfriend we see for an extended amount of time him sitting like alone at, in the middle of this corner booth or banquet yeah. in the restaurant. And he orders the Brandy Alexander. He orders the yeah. Brandy Alexander <laughs> and he drinks out of the stirring uh, straw, yeah. not realizing yeah. that's not a quote unquote real straw. Mm-hmm. So good. And he's, yeah, he's just kind of messing up, right? And we yeah. know that and that's happening narratively. But visually, he's in the center of the frame, very like Wes Anderson style. And there's so much verticality in the frame and there are vertical stripes in the banquet upholstery and there's vertical panels instead of curtains decorating the window and he's wearing a striped tie as well but the stripes are canted at an angle and as a result he's sort of like the one thing in the image that is not quite in alignment and i just think it's such an incredible economical screen grab for his whole performance and his whole character and whether it was intentional or not, I think, you know, interests me little, but I would guess it was, but yeah. you know, I, I yeah. don't care, but it, it's just like <laughs> such a great, I'm also fascinated that your brain clocked all of that in real time, just to, to remind yourself to rewind it and rewind. I mean, I was like, yeah, which is always one of my very favorite parts about your brain is how you notice these microcosms or little worlds in almost every shot that we talk about. Oh, I'm like, I just, you. I don't have that. <laughs> I'm like, I like when he danced, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I like Tony Dance. That's an amazing notice on your part. I think James Gray would be thrilled to hear that uh, a viewer was watching it that closely uh, in order to uh, pick something like that up. And I'm sure he, I mean, he's a smart, smart guy. I would guess that there's not a lot of accidental stuff in there. It's great whether the film knows it or not. Yeah. And I I would say the moment that I really was going to talk about, but I was like, we've never done this. Didn't want to spring it on you guys. I didn't think it would be fair to come on and talk about just the ending of the film, but I really really love the ambiguity of the ending and both the sadness and like, maybe this is okay. I mean, it left me with a lot of mixed emotions and I thought it was great. And also the kind of the bookend to how the film started. So I just didn't want to give away everything in 15 minutes so that no one would watch it. Yeah, watch it. Go watch that movie. And I should say, uh, we can actually say this, it is currently streaming on Gallery. So you can watch it on Gallery's website. Nice. And check out James Gray's list. They have some behind the scenes stuff. They did not ask me to say this. I just was excited about it. It's a really good month to check them out. So James Gray. James Gray. Thanks for listening to another installment of our bite-sized monthly series in conversation with and sponsored by our friends at Gallery. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands.